Hey, welcome to the Project Church Podcast. My name is Caleb Cole. I'm the lead pastor here at Project Church in downtown Sacramento. And we're so glad that you came to hear this word. We believe this is going to encourage you, build you up, and give you life. So get ready to receive a message from God. Well, good morning, everybody. Are you ready for some encouragement? Good, me too. By the way, not bad, downtown Old Sac on a Sunday morning in the summer. Perfect, great to see you guys. I want to tell you that I love your pastors. Uh, Caleb and Chrissy uh, are the best. I um, have given my whole life to ministry, and so now I do very, very few weddings, funerals, staff meetings, that kind of stuff, because the future are the Caleb and Chrissy's and Project Church. So over the next 10 to 15 years, all I want to do is invest leadership investment, love, faith, cash, everything that I can in the next generation, because this is the future. And I am so proud. Last time I was here, I was turned around this way. The room was mostly dark, sawdust everywhere, one lousy fan. That was a lousy fan, homie. Hope you got rid of it. One lo- my th- notes are flying everywhere. Yeah, I don't use an iPad yet. And so I, I use it, but not to teach. So anyhow, coming back to this, it doesn't quite have the rustic ambiance of the first time, but this is awesome. I want you guys to know that. So Caleb, Chrissy's so proud of what you guys and your servant leadership has done. I feel love in the house. I feel joy, but I also feel intensity. I feel focus. I feel all these things. And uh, I think that's my entrustment from God as servant leadership. And what I'm feeling, seeing, smelling, hearing is great stuff in the house this weekend, man. Take your Bibles, would you please, or your device, however it is that you access truth. If I had one message to teach before I died, I think this would be it. Loving people is loving God. Loving people is loving God, you say. That's fairly innocuous, John. Is there anything more to it? Just hang on. Because I I love the Bible. I love its transcendent truth, which transforms. Remember, truth does not transform until we do it. That's why people can go to church for decades and remain unchanged. They're just the biggest spiritual babies now as they were 15 years ago or 35 years ago. They never begin to internalize and obey truth. Jesus said, this is the one that loves me, the one that does what I command. And so this is what we're going to focus on uh, this morning. I want you to think hard, and I want you to be relentless with yourself. I can't do this for you. You can't do this for me. I want you to think hard about how you think about people. That's the point of the Bible study today. I want you to think hard about how you think about people. Because from my vantage point through the years, I'm pretty sure that even genuine, legit Christ followers are not in some sense getting it. By the way, not that I've arrived. I'm only growing and learning every day but I'm watching how believers interact with culture. And in some places, it's just weird. In some places, it's just straight up not Jesus. And so we're going to take a look at one of the epic Jesus moments in the whole of the Bible. Uh, One example, for example, how we interact, interface, respond to, do life with people far from God. So many churches, so many earnest uh, believers see 
unbelievers as the enemy. They are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And we are not understanding, and I want you to watch how Jesus sees real people in this morning's uh, Bible study. Your notes, by the way, are on version. Access them. I've given you a load of truth that I think will help you. Now, let me put it this way. It's one thing to believe in Jesus. A bunch of you in the house have done that this weekend. I hope not everybody. I hope every weekend we have people that, in a sense, are looking under the hood, kicking the tires, checking out the claims of Christ. Christianity, Jesus Christ, the Bible can stand inquiry, scrutiny, analysis. We're, we're not afraid. And so wherever you may be, the introductory step is to believe in Jesus. But where Caleb and Chrissy and the team are trying to take you, take all of us over time, is to learn to believe like Jesus. You understand the difference? Believing in him is only the introductory step. That's just first spiritual baby steps. Learning to believe like him is what the Bible would call sanctification. Don't be messed up by that word. It's simply growing a heart that works like Christ's heart works. And so we're learning to believe like Jesus because we won't learn to see people right through the correct lens with the correct heart until we begin to believe like Jesus. Take your Bibles, please. Join me at Luke 7, would you? Luke chapter 7. We're picking up the trail at verse number 36. And we're going to read the whole passage. We're looking at a broken human being who happens to be a woman uh, trapped in prostitution. We're looking at a harsh, judgmental, legalistic, religious person. His name's Simon. And then Jesus is there. Just those three people. Okay, so we're in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. I'm reading from the NIV. I want you to listen really, really hard. I'm going to go Shrek on you. We're just going to peel back the onion, baby. Because the Bible can never mean what the Bible never meant. You understand that? Thenness comes before nowness. We have to understand context. Because the people looked different, they ate different, they dressed different, they believed different. Everything was different. And I don't think anybody in the house is a first century Jewish individual, right? So what we've got to do is understand the moment of inspiration in Luke 7 before we dive in to what it means for us in the capital city of the greatest state of the greatest nation in the world, okay? I'm in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees, that's a religious leader, invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Notice the word reclined. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Remember that. She stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, wipe them with her hair, kiss them, and poured perfume on them. I can't tell you what grave sort of scandal and taboo is happening right here in the house. We wouldn't, I mean, to us, we look at me, that's just kind of like weird, not normal. But to them, it's just like, just kind of a freak out moment. Okay, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man, referencing Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Do you see Simon's worldview there in the nutshell? Okay? 
Notice, uh, I'm in verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. I love how Jesus uh, interacts with people. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, uh, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Highlight it, mark it, emphasize it some way on your device, your Bible, whatever. Do you see this woman? Simon, you're looking, but buddy, you ain't seeing. She came into the house, and you didn't give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. Remember this, everybody. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. She's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus is at a dinner party, and that made him suspect. I'm talking to you about the setting. Uh, because there is among some the idea, how can you possibly enjoy uh, your faith, right? And so it is suspect that the founder of Christianity is at a dinner party enjoying himself with folks. Now, he was in the home of a wealthy, influential person, and his name was Simon. This religious leader was loaded with influence. Uh, uh, culturally, he dominated the community. He had a lot of money. And distinguished guests were invited to dine at his house often. This was not unusual. It was often. Uh, his house was kind of the hub. It was the coffee shop of the day in this dusty little Jewish village. It was the gathering spot, the watering hole, whatever you want to call it. Now notice, it says they met in the open courtyard. Uh, how you ate your food in the first century is very different than how we eat in the 21st century. Most Americans, and I raised four kids, uh, my wife and I, and they all had this mentality. Remember Beauty and the Beast? They're eating like the beast for the first time he ever got a fork, just, and that's how Americans eat. But back in the day, they're in an open courtyard in the middle of the house. There's probably a little bit of running water, and neighbors would gather around. You guys know what paparazzi are? This is kind of a paparazzi moment because when you had these distinguished guests dining with Simon, who was the Pharisee of the region, it was like, come one, come all. It was a paparazzi moment. Now, let me tell you about having a meal with Jesus, because that's loaded. Uh, the Jews called a meal covenant. So what do we do in American culture for angry with somebody? We get a lawyer, they get a lawyer, we lawyer up, and we go after each other for the jugular. Back in that day, you would share a meal. So often in the Bible, we see Jesus saying something along the lines of, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, right? And that's what a meal covenant is. When two people had a dispute with one another, what they would do is break bread, share a meal together. Why? The purpose of reconciling. That's why eating together is such a powerful tonic to human relationships. Nothing I love better than eating and hanging out with people. 
getting to know them, love on them, watch some football, whatever. By the way, I'm glad I'm in 49er country. So in, I, I got some Raider freaks in the Bay, and I got, I've got a very narrow line, baby. I'm in the East Bay. So Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will open, I will come in and what? Jesus said, eat with you. Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban ate together, settled the disagreement, validated a covenant. Luke 15, you remember the prodigal son? What happened when the rebel came home? They ate together, killed the fatted calf. See, these meals of reconciliation. How about Psalm 23? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. How about the Gospels when Jesus, that last night before he went to the cross, extended bread to Judas over a final dinner together? So meal covenants were a big deal. You could actually say that we serve a hungry God who is eager to settle down with human beings over a meal, relate, Forgive, restore, make all things new. You say, John, what's a Pharisee? A Pharisee is like an elite class of religious leader, sort of a, a power broker priest in first century Judaism. Now, I talked to you about the open courtyard. Uh, people did not sit at chairs. If you think they sat at chairs, you obviously haven't been to Israel very much because it's rocks, it's sand, it's desert. Uh, yes, along the coast, there's adequate water from the Jordan Rift and the Jordan River Valley uh, coming down from Mount Hermon. Uh, but the people, when they came in, it would be a low table and everybody would be reclined on their left side eating with their right hands, Okay. A typical meal in the first century would take two to three hours. It was done at the end of the day's work, lit by little soft uh, olive oil lamps. What did people do after, after dinner? They went to bed. There was no electricity. Okay, so that's another reason. They got up at dawn. They were in the fields uh, or fishing or doing what they do by first light. They were exhausted by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So they'd go home, have this lengthy meal, and they'd just crawl into bed. That's also probably why they had so many kids. Evidently, that's what seems to be happening here at Project Church. Okay. <laughs> by the way, true story, you don't believe me, but I ain't lying to you. Check it out, Thomas Edison. As soon as the light became widely available in American culture, truly, the birth rate plummeted in America. So you just check it out. That's a little Google fun fact for you. It was about relationship. Jesus did so much of his uh, most redemptive ministry in settings like this, a meal, reclining on pillows, eating, talking, sharing, gentle. We have a maxim in our culture at the Bay Church in the Bay Area. In life, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, you've got to go together. So let me say that again. If you want to go fast, you, you go alone. But if you want to go far, meaning have a long influence, we've got to go together. Now, did you notice what happened uh, when Jesus came in? Something, three somethings actually, that Simon overlooked, but the woman did not. Go ahead and put up our picture. Now, you got to realize this is a, an artist's rendition. One of the big problems, first of all, is with Jesus. Uh, so many artists, and I'm being honest with you, 
make him seem kind of like a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, blow-dried hair, blue eyes, etc. Not what Jesus looked like. Jesus in his humanity probably had some version of a ponytail, probably long, greasy hair. And by the way, he was not sissy boy. He was mentored by his stepfather, Joseph. They were carpenters. That guy had some serious guns. His hands were calloused, rough-hewn. Okay, so we got to get our little feathered notion of what Jesus, he's not like the American idol. He is God in the flesh. So, but artist rendition, right? Artist liberty. I guarantee you she was not dressed this nice, but this is the woman. What is happening here with an unmarried man and woman in a public setting is absolute taboo. More on that in a moment. And then you can see Simon, uh, the one sitting there in some of his Pharisee cronies, okay? Now, whenever you went into somebody's house, it was routine. Like, if you came to my house right now, front door, come on, get in here, big hug for, it's COVID, I don't care, get in here, and we'd hug, and if it was, you know, raining or cold out, I'd take your coat, put it up, and we take our shoes off in our house, so just throw your shoes there, pat around in socks, hey, you want something to drink, something cold, iced tea, lemonade, whatever, coffee, in that day, three things were ritual. When you came into somebody's house, the first thing you gave them was a kiss of peace. Not on the lips, on the cheek. Okay, the kiss of peace. It was a sign of respect for the guest who's now entered your home. Secondly, there were no roads in those days, just dusty little paths. Shoes in those days were little rough-hewn leather soles with a strap over the top. So if you went anywhere, your feet are stinking, filthy, dirty. So the first thing that would happen when you came in, the household servant, notice the household servant, reed slave of that household, would take a towel, a basin, and wash the feet of the guest that just came in, who just received the kiss. What did Jesus Christ do the last night before he went to the cross? The job of a household servant. That's what he did. There was great symbolism in him kneeling down and washing feet. Then there would be a, uh, a, a, a dab of fragrant oil. You say, John, why would that be the third thing that they just put some, you know, a dab of, of olive oil? And here's the reason. I told you it was a desert. Probably the people back in that era might not have taken full baths Never a shower, those weren't a thing. Full baths more than literally three, four times a year, certainly not more than once a month. And here's the good news, when everybody stinks, nobody really notices. Like if you're smelling good and everybody's stinking, you're like, I'm out of here. But there's a part of my life, I grew up on the farm, my mother's a German immigrant daughter coming over from Germany, and you just, when you're working and sweating and stinking with everybody, life's good. But... You'd put that fragrant oil there, just a little dabble, do you? So those three things, watch this. The kiss, the feet wash, the dab of fragrant oil. Simon did not do those. Go ahead and put our picture up again. Simon did not do those. She did all three. You say, John, why did Simon not do them? And she did. Because that was the motive in his heart. Simon wasn't having Jesus over because he had any respect or regard for who Jesus was or what he was teaching. He was a curiosity. Simon was a player. He was a politician. And he was patronizing Jesus and setting Jesus up 
to kind of be the fall guy of the night, right? But this woman comes in uninvited with the rest of the villagers, you know, the local paparazzi, and she is doing all three. Remember that. Don't forget that, okay? Now, let's talk about our uh, cast of characters here. First of all, let me go a little bit deeper on Simon. Simon was a Pharisee. I told you that's a religious leader. By the way, not all Pharisees were bad individuals. I can name two. Remember Nicodemus? He's the one who actually took Jesus' body to the tomb. Do you remember, uh, or rather Simon of Arimathea, do you remember um, uh, a guy named Saul of Tarsus who was a Pharisee who became the Apostle Paul? He was a murderer of Christians in the first century. Without the Apostle Paul, we've lost half our New Testament. Okay, so not all were bad. Simon was very typical. Not worse, not better, very average Pharisee. He was legalistic. He was critical. He was judgmental. He was suspicious. He was a religious churchgoer. Have you met harsh religious people in the local church? I have. I never knew what cruelty was until I entered ministry full-time at 21 uh, because of Randy's dad, Caleb's grandfather. And all of a sudden, I, be, I, I was so disillusioned, you know, and I was so green, wet behind the ears. I had no clue about nothing. But I had the general assumption, Christian people got to just be like consistently very nice, thoughtful. And gong you, not a thing. Now, what good leaders do in a church, what I've done in every church since, I try to love people to be nice, and if they can't have an attitude adjustment, I help them have a new church. And it solves the problem. I'm, I'm very serious about that. We work patiently. We work lovingly. We're not going to have divisive people in the house. We are going to have a plurality of opinions, perspectives, approaches. That's not threatening. That's not a problem. But mean people, you're out of here. Okay, so Simon was like that. I told you he didn't have the right motives for inviting Jesus over. Uh, and also I told you he didn't do the automatic three customary greetings when you went into the home of a, of a person that had invited you. You may be looking at me saying, so John, why are Pharisees so often legalistic and judgmental and mean? Here's the answer. Everybody looking at me, just here's the answer. Because that's what religion does to us. If you are judging people in your heart, you are succumbing to a, a pharisaical spirit. And you might not be saying it out loud, but what's going on in your head and your heart? Remember I said we are thinking today about how we think about other human beings. You know, uh, traffic and rush hour and get these idiots out of my way. And I can't tell you on the Bay Area freeways how many times I've personally been told that I am number one. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm definitely number one in the, Randy, you'll have to explain that to him later. All right, let's talk about the woman, and that's where I want to really focus. Imagine her reality. She was a prostitute. If you don't ask the next question, your heart's not quite where Jesus wants it to be in reference to human beings. You have to ask why. She's a prostitute. You understand? Uh, I have pastored thousands and thousands of people in my life. I've never yet met one beautiful little girl. And I have two daughters and two sons. 
I have three granddaughters now and a grandson. I've never met one little girl that ever went up to me, sweetheart, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, pastor, I want to grow up and be a prostitute. That would just be like the best thing ever. It's never happened before. It will never, it will never happen. Because that's not what some people choose to do. It's a life that they get trapped into. So let's talk about uh, what's going on in this woman's life. Because you realize the Bay Area and Sacramento and Los Angeles are major sex trafficking hubs. And what we are doing, and by the way, these are not all people from abroad in, in some of our safest suburbs. You have the brains behind these evil trafficking systems. And what we're doing in America, shame on us. It is sin. We are buying, selling, using our daughters, our sisters, our mothers, and our neighbors. And it is sin and it is evil. What probably happened with this lady, go ahead and put the picture up again, would you? She may well have been married earlier. Now, I'm not saying, women in the house, that this is how it should be. In fact, to the contrary, I'm telling you how it was 2,000 years ago in an ancient near Mideastern culture. Remember, the Bible can never mean what the Bible never meant. She was almost certainly married earlier and then was either divorced not that likely, because there was real consequence, according to the laws of Moses in Israel, if, you know, you just got tired, she burned the bacon one time too many, you're at, well, not bacon, they're Jews, right, so that was a bad illustration, but you're with me. She was probably widowed, husband died young for whatever reason, and no children. So if you don't have a husband and you have no children, and if you don't have a brother that will take you in, you will be forced out into the streets. You will be materially destitute. Have you read the book of Ruth in the Old Testament? Remember, she's gleaning the few bits of wheat kernels along the edge of the fields after harvest. That's all that was available. Please let your mind get away from This is pretty women. This is not Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. What we are seeing here is slavery. This dear woman is trapped. Her life is broken. She's a prisoner of the system. And you may have missed maybe the most important thing that's going to tell us everything we need to know. Three people are the characters in our story. Simon, we know. Told you about that knucklehead. Jesus, we know. We'll talk about him in a minute. And the woman's name was, exactly, the Bible doesn't even give her a name. Now, uh, some of you like your names, some of you don't like your names, but names are really tied to our identity and our sense of self, right? She is nameless. She's the only one in our story that is nameless, and that's why her life Uh, That's what society has done to her, because if you have no name, you have no identity, no worth, no value, no standing, and her community is heaping scorn and disgust and contempt on her. In their mind, she was lower than a tax collector, and if you're lower than an IRS dude, I want you to know you're low. These were dusty little villages. If you haven't been to Israel, the the land's just rolling, rocky. Uh, It's beautiful, but... It's rugged, and these villages were all 100, 150, 200, 250 people. In a city that size, everybody knows everybody. 
and everybody knew who she was, and everybody knew what she did. And I guarantee you to get from point A to B at any time in her little dusty village, she'd walk with her head down, her ears are picking up the vile gossip, the hatred that's being spewed upon her on a daily basis. She's living with self-rejection. She's living with loathing. And most of all, never forget this, she lived with shame. She lived with shame. The image of God in her was distorted. The image of God in her was shattered. There's so many things I could say. You'd be proud of me for all the things I'm not saying. I got a hustle here. I will just say if you check out John 8 and align it with Luke 7 later because we have another woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8. I've always believed what Jesus was writing was the names of the women, the guys that were ready to throw the rocks at her, the names of the women uh, they had been with. And I think that's what's happening again here in Luke number seven, that likely the same men who now revile her had sought her services in secret. We are not what we are in public. Anybody can be an actor or actress on a stage. We are truly what we are in the secret place. Let me make a comment historically about women, and I'm not trying to be po politically correct. I'm very committed to being biblically correct. The Bible teaches that God created in his image male and female, female and male. By the way, God is not a man as we understand. God is not a woman. God is Lord. He is God. And so he created male and female in his image. And throughout history, because of man's fallen nature, women have been treated as property. They've been treated in most cultures of the, of the world, not democratic cultures, although misogyny is embedded deeply in ways we don't fully identify. But throughout most of the cultures of history, women were treated as property. Jesus Christ elevated the total anthropological, sociological uh, level of water when he said, in Christ there is neither male nor female. You, we, we have to understand that was a cultural uh, revolution when the Bible makes that proclamation. Jesus Christ alone, of all religious leaders, Jesus Christ alone elevates women to their rightful proper place as full and equal image bearers of the image of God. Fact today, one in three women in America today will be in some version sexually abused in their lifetime. Not that far from this dear woman. I want you to think about what's going along in Afghanistan today. People are holding on to planes to get out ahead of the Taliban and the clock's ticking and Tuesday's the deadline. And women will once again be covered and imprisoned and just basically it's, it's a system of such rank cruelty and evil. It's unspeakable. Now, let's talk about the rabbi and Jesus or rather the rabbi and the woman. When you were a man in culture, like I just came over and gave Pastor Christy, Chrissy a hug, uh, you couldn't do that because she's not my wife, she's not my mother, you're definitely not my mother, and she's not my daughter, could be that. In Jewish culture, a rabbi or even a male was not allowed to eat with or publicly be seen with a woman of any kind, unless it was it's one of your kids, unless it was your wife 
or your daughter or your mother, and especially not a prostitute. When she showed up uninvited, she was part of kind of the spontaneous gathering of paparazzi of Simon and Jesus at this meal. When she showed up, Simon was freaking out. When she let her hair down to wipe Jesus' feet, she violated every cultural taboo. It was grave, immodesty, it was scandalous. Did you notice in verse 39, Simon is thinking in his legalistic mind, does he know who's touching hair? Does he know who's touching him? Does he know what kind of a woman she is? And see, those thoughts go through our heads as human beings. And that's why today we are talking about how we think about how we think about other human beings. What did she pour on his feet? She brought some very expensive perfume. Look at me, everybody. What was her only means of income in this moment in her life? Selling her body for other people's pleasure so she could have enough to sustain her, her literal life. So when she is pouring the contents of that expensive perfume on the master's feet, she is pouring out her life. She's pouring out the proceeds of her sin. She's pouring out her shame, her guilt, her self-hatred, her loathing, her everything. And then she lets her hair down after she pours the perfume on his feet. And she wipes his feet. Remember, Simon didn't do that. That was standard, remember? And then she kisses his feet. Simon didn't give Jesus a kiss, remember? And now this simple little courtyard is filled with the pungent aroma of this incredibly valuable perfume that this woman had earned in prostitution. Let me help you with the idea of sin. Write it down and and wrestle with this later. When God or the Bible gives a life-giving ethical framework for our lives to flourish, i.e., when when the Bible says don't sin, what God is really saying is don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. Because whenever we live out the loving, wise, true ethical parameters of God's loving guidelines for our lives, we hurt ourselves. Let's talk about Jesus quickly and wrap up. Jesus loved human beings with a radical inclusivity and irrational love as no one ever had. And the next thing that I'm going to say is the most important thing in reference to Jesus, which means it's the most important thing in reference to you and me at Project Church and how we live out our lives and our sphere of influence in Sacramento in the 21st century. There's one of two ways that you and I can approach other human beings. We can approach them beginning with their personal sinfulness, or we can make our first approach with them having high regard for their intrinsic value and worth in the sight of God. There's really not much of a middle ground uh, we, we are so often afraid of people far from God. We, we want people that are LGBTQ or living some uh, other lifestyle of choice. They are welcome at the Bay Church. 
And we simply believe God is big enough to be God all by himself, that we do the loving, that the Holy Spirit does the transforming and brings us not only to salvation in Christ, but begins that sanctification process where we've now moved from believing in Jesus to learning to believe like Jesus. Okay, so we, we simply love human beings where they're at in the moment. So Jesus never began with the sinfulness of the individual in the moment. He always began with the value of the person. Now, let me close with this tension between Simon and the woman. Look at him there with me for just a moment. Simon knew about God. He knew about religion, liturgy, theology, ethics, temple worship, the whole shooting match. He knew about God. Simon did not know God. He knew about the Word of God. He could recite it, wrote memory. He did not know the Word of God. He understood the letter. He missed the spirit. He completely misunderstood unconditional love. This woman's motives were right. Simon's motives were wrong in this scene. The woman knew how lost she was. Simon had no clue how lost he was. She committed visible sins of the flesh. Simon committed, watch this, far more serious, invisible sins of the heart. And if there is one thing that cuts us off from the mercy of God, from the grace of God, it is the pride of self-sufficiency. And that's what was going on in Simon's heart. All he could see was her past. All Jesus could see was her future. That's why the story turns on verse 44 when he says, Simon, look at this woman. Do you see her? See, we can look and not see. Or we can look and see in our old rutted ways of judging people, stereotyping people, rebuking or abusing people in our spirit, our mind, and heart. Or we can begin to simply love people as they are in the moment. Mother Teresa put it this way. You and I are containers of God. And when we enter a person's life, we bring the God of the universe with us because he lives in us. I'm looking at a room full of the containers of God. Our job as Christ followers is to make the invisible God visible to a world that does not recognize him. And we do that by loving like Jesus. And so I'm asking you, as I ask myself to open my mind to the transcendent truth of Jesus today, to open my eyes. I am a blind man, and I'm ashamed of myself. And to open my heart and begin to love human beings like Jesus. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to the Project Church podcast. We pray and hope that this message encouraged you, built you up, and gave you life. We want to ask that you would invest right now in what God is doing here in downtown Sacramento. We've just recently moved in to our all-new building in the waterfront, Old Sacramento District. We want to ask you, if you'd like to give, you can go to projectchurch.com forward slash give to invest. Let's see all that God can do through us.